that I'll be reading this morning from 1 Corinthians 8, verses 4 through 6. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist And one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. This is God's living and active word. Let's pray and ask his blessing upon it and our time this morning in hearing it. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we exist from you, and through your Son we exist as a born-again people called by you, regenerated by your Spirit, to the end that we might give praise and glory to the name above all names, Jesus Christ. Help us to do that now, we pray, Lord. Help us to behold in wonder who you are as our triune God, our Creator God, our Lord and Sovereign God. And Father, we pray that you would help us to love you with a unified mind, heart, soul, and that our love would be known throughout the nations. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most important classical documents of historic Christianity is the Nicene Creed. Uh, Have you read the Nicene Creed? We've read it here at church before. We probably ought to read it more than we do. Churches have used the Nicene Creed since the 5th century to confess key essential truths of what it is we, the church, believe. It's basically a statement confessing that Christians believe in one God who is three persons. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. The Creed begins with these words... We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, and then continues a few lines down later with, and in one Lord Jesus Christ. So what's being confessed? Namely, that the Father and the Son are not only co-eternal, but also co-equal. Just as the Father is fully divine, so too the Son is fully divine. And what's striking, at least for us this morning, is that that language the authors of the Nicene Creed used was language taken verbatim from Paul's own confession here in 1 Corinthians 8, specifically verse 6. For us there is one God the Father and one Lord Jesus Christ. To be sure, Paul is a strict monotheist. He says as much in verse 6, for us there is one God. As a Jew who held that the Old Testament Bible was the perfect and inspired word of God, and that that word revealed that there is only one God, it would have been 
unimaginable to confess that there was more than one divine being. For Paul, there cannot be more than one God. And yet Paul explicitly links here the divinity of the Son, Jesus Christ, by calling Him Lord with the divinity of the Father who is God. Arguably, the most important verse in the Old Testament was that verse in Deuteronomy 6, which Will just read for us. That verse is commonly known as the Shema. It's called the Shema because that's the Hebrew word that it starts off with. Hear or listen, Shema. And what the Shema confesses, because it is a confession of faith, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Listen to that again. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This was the verse which every child would have first memorized in Jesus' day. Paul would have cherished this passage, reciting it every morning and every evening, maybe through family catechism around the dinner table. But notice that what Paul is doing here in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 6, he's taking the classic Shema of Deuteronomy 6.4, a clear confession of our one God, monotheism, and he reformulates it to include within that confession the truth that Jesus is the one Lord of which it speaks. Paul effectively takes the phrase, Lord, our God, of Deuteronomy 6.4, and asks, who is being spoken of here? Who is this Lord? Paul's answer, it's ultimately speaking about the one Lord, Jesus Christ. The genius of this, and it's, of course, genius because it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, but the genius of this is that Paul essentially and effectively protects true monotheism, We really do believe in just one God, but also allows there to be a differentiation of persons within that one God, the Father, the Son, who we know is Jesus. Now, how can Jesus Christ share in the Father's unique dignity as God, as Paul seems to imply here in 1 Corinthians 8? There's many ways in which The Bible answers that question, but here, Paul testifies to the divinity of the Son by reflecting on the way in which God, who is the creator of all things, on how the Father and Son both create. So according to Paul here in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, creation is an act of God alone. And here Paul sees an ordered agency between both the Father and the Son. Look again at verse 6. For us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Do you see how Paul is placing in parallel form both the work of the Father in creating all things, as well as the Son in creating all things? But notice the difference. The difference isn't that the Father created and the Son didn't. No, Paul's clear. All things exist through the Son. 
And the difference is also not what the Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons would say, that God the Father first created the Son, and then that created Son created other lesser things. That's not what Paul is saying. Again, Paul is absolutely clear here. All things, that means all things, everything that is, all things that have been created exist because of both the Father and the Son. So what's the difference? The difference is in their agency. Look at the verse. The way the biblical writers understand the work of our triune God is that all of God is doing the work of creating all things, but that each person within the Godhead acts from their own personal agency. And so Paul can say that God the Father is the one from whom are all things and for whom we exist, whereas the Son, who is Lord God, is the one through whom are all things and through whom we exist. In other words, there's ordered agency. Isn't this what the Apostle John is communicating? When in the beginning of his great gospel, the Gospel of John, he writes that, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. It's the exact same thing Paul is saying here. John distinguishes here not between God the Father and the Son, but between God the Father and the Word. And he says explicitly that the Word is a distinct person since the Word was with God. And yet that doesn't mean that the Word is somehow not divine because John immediately says what? That the Word was God. But strikingly, Just like Paul in 1 Corinthians 8, he gives a unique agency to the Word when he says that all things were made through Him. God the Father created all things. How? Through His divine Word. As the Father spoke, and we know this from Genesis 1, let there be light. That Word, who is fully divine, was the means through which light came into being. So who created that light? God did. Father through the Word. As the Father spoke, let there be earth and waters and sky and animals and mankind made in our image, our image. That Word spoken was the agency through which all things came into being. The New Testament's own internal theology on who and what God is is gloriously rich in its development of understanding that our one glorious God is mysteriously but very clearly a God who is Father and Son and Spirit. Just a side note, some of you may be asking the question, well, why doesn't Paul bring up the Holy Spirit here? Did you think that? Does he not think that the Holy Spirit is a divine person with the Godhead? Well, in many other places throughout the New Testament and any other New Testament writers, they often do link the Spirit in the same passage with the Father and the Son. Think of the very last passage in the Gospel of Matthew, the Great Commission. Baptize them in the name, singular, not names, but in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
But in our own context here, I think we can rest assured that Paul didn't actually need to do that. Remember, Paul is re-articulating that ancient Hebrew creed, the Shema, and he's answering the question, now in light of what Jesus Christ has revealed in his coming, he's answering the question, who is the Lord? When the Shema says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And for Paul, the answer is clearly Jesus, the Son of God. So there's no need to bring up the Spirit here. But rest assured, Paul has already actually taught us about the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians. And he's shown us that the Spirit is also a fully divine person. I know it's been a couple of months, but do you remember back in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5? Paul clearly stated that the gospel he preaches is being preached, as he says, in demonstration of the power of the Spirit, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. For Paul, the link couldn't be any more clear. The power of the Spirit is the power of God. The Spirit is God. For Paul and For all the New Testament writers, the coming of Jesus Christ is God revealing himself to us by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the Son, to the glory of the Father. There's a clear divine agency in all that God does, but in a distinctly Trinitarian fashion. This this is why Paul can, can kind of shout out in worshipful praise at the end of Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So what? Like, why do we care about this? Why does this matter at all? Well, always the first answer to that kind of question is because the Bible cares about it and has revealed it, right? Insofar as it's in the scriptures, we ought to give our full attention to it. But in the immediate context, we looked at this chapter about a month and a half ago. It's this truth which glues together Paul's instructions in chapter 8 to love others by giving up your rights in deference to serving weaker brothers and sisters whose consciences might be bruised. Bruised over what? Well, in in this context, eating meat that was sacrificed at the temple. Their consciences came to different convictions. And Paul wants to encourage the Corinthian Christians to put away your rights to enjoy something that you might be able to enjoy guilt-free in order to love and serve other brothers and sisters who would feel guilty about that thing. And he places right in the middle of that chapter this rich theology of the Trinity. In other words, to rightly know and love God is to know and have your heart melted by the fact that the Son of God who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in the human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Friends, do you see? True love for others, other brothers and sisters, 
must stem, not just might stem, must stem from a true love of God. And get this, we don't truly love God if we don't grasp that God is Father and Son and Holy Spirit. True Christian love for others must be conformed to and look like the way in which God has loved us in and through His Son, Jesus Christ. The Trinity is not some weird, abstract, high-minded theology that we've got to be right on so we can check off the Orthodox checklist. It's the foundation on which we grow to love one another. Just a side note, this isn't in my notes. It's no coincidence that other religions who uphold one God, other monotheisms, tend to often be awfully judgmental and strict and um, uh, cold in their relationships with other people. Consider what this means for us. First, all ethics and morality, right? In other words, how we interact with each other and our neighbors in an ethical way cannot be rightly done outside of knowing God and knowing God is triune. The Trinity is the foundation, the, 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 the base rock on which we build a right theology of loving others and ethics and morality and neighborly care and interacting with one another. Greenbelt Baptist Church, do you want to grow in loving others? I dare say, buy a thick book on the Trinity. And as C.S. Lewis says, with a pipe in your teeth and a pencil in your hands, get to work on knowing who God is and be amazed at who God is. And I promise you, your heart will bubble over in love for others. Secondly, there's something radically unifying in knowing and loving that God is Father and Son and Spirit. Remember, the issue in the, the church in Corinth was a constant tearing of the seams. Little groups and factions and tribes clamoring for their own individual rights to do this and to claim that. This group's way or the highway, all others be damned. Studying 1 Corinthians is in a very real sense being able to study the effects of identity politics let loose and running rampant. The church was splitting because each little group placed more value in their own group identity rather than in any, anything else. What does Paul do? He reminds them that they all have their ultimate existence in God the Father through Jesus Christ their Lord. Friends, our society, our wider society as a whole is ripping apart to no small measure because identity politics is let loose and running rampant. Americans are finding their purpose and their meaning and their identity more and more in any given tribe or political party or ethnic group and subculture. And what that means is we're more and more pitted against each other. We mistrust one another. We grow and are, are, are teaching one another more and more to hate one another. It's no coincidence that one of Christianity's greatest gifts to the world is that we pushed against the idea that one group 
can fix society by using another group or another tribe as a scapegoat. Punish one group for the sins of society and then there will be peace. It's that group's fault. Get rid of them and now we can have peace in society. It's no coincidence that with the rise of the Third Reich and the Nazi regime, they denied God and therefore treated groups as scapegoats for Germany's problems. Christianity alone has said no. Christ alone is our scapegoat. And he gave his life for all people, no matter what group they find themselves in, because all people and all groups are really sinful. Writing in 1759, Jean-Jacques Rousseau noted rightly that prior to the advent of Christianity, quote, political war was also theological war. The dominion of the gods were, so to speak, determined by the boundaries of the nations. Far from men fighting for gods, it was, as in Homer, the gods who fought through men. By this, Rousseau meant to give some indication of the rage that scapegoating another nation or scapegoating another group or tribe once involved. It felt good to place the blame for all of society's ills on that group and then punish that group, silence that group, indeed exterminate that group to bring peace on earth. But it was Christianity alone which put an end to that, diminishing the importance of politics and political warfare ever since. Oh, and dear friends, as our society walks away more and more from classic Orthodox Christianity, is it any wonder that the ancient gods of identity politics have begun to rear their ugly heads again, driving us to hate each other more and more? Church, do we want to be salt and light in a currently dark and fragmenting world? Be robustly Christian. Be robustly Trinitarian and declare that Christ is the Son of God. Thirdly, don't be vague in your talk about God. We don't believe in a vague deity who is simply God. We believe in a God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. When we pray to God, we pray by the power of the Spirit in the name above all names, Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God. Amen. That's our God. Contrary to the 117th Congress and how they opened up Congress with the prayer to God and Brahmin and whatever God it is that you want to choose, amen and a woman. No, we believe in the one God who has died for us in his son, Jesus Christ. And we worship that one God who is three persons and yet there is perfect divine unity in his oneness. Unity begets unity. And what we worship will impact how we worship together. Fourthly, as verse 3 tells us, you must be known by this God to rightly know and love him. 
if you have yet to receive Jesus Christ, who is the God-man, as your Savior. Oh, I plead with you. Pray to him now. Repent and ask God to know you with his divine electing love and to bring you into the knowledge of his love, to share in the eternal love that is experienced with the Father, Son, and Spirit, and become one with that God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are separated from God the Father by sin. And he has loved us by sending his son, our Lord, to die for that sin. And when we believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord, we are brought now into unity with the Godhead. That unity and knowing that love is the means by which we grow in love for one another. I pray that if you've not known God yet, you would do so now in Christ. And for us who have, let us continually go to Christ to be drawn deeper into the mysterious unity and love of our God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Before I end and ask um, the elder to come and pray, I'd like us to stand. And I'd like us all to sing. And you can remain standing after we sing to hear the closing prayer. But let's sing together the doxology who confesses in this song the oneness of our God in three persons. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Amen. Let's pray.